Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. We are located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in the great big beautiful town bank building. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank building, which is directly across from Winkies and Kitty Corner from Sendex. So I think everybody knows where we are there. And now, that especially since winter's coming, it's nice to know that we can service our clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. If you'd like more detail, if you'd like to see some pictures, um, just go to ellenbecker.com for more details. Today, my guest is Chip Duncan, and Chip has been a guest on our radio show many times, as well as he's come to our office, and he's shared some of um, his films and artwork with our clients, and it's always just such a great pleasure to be able to welcome him into any venue that we have, because, uh, Chip, you're a very exciting guy. (laughs) thank you. You do a lot of fun things, and you've always got something very interesting that you're working on. And, and for me, this is kind of a big year. This is my 29th year of hosting Money Sense, which wow. always comes around just around Thanksgiving. And I remember when I started the show and I was working for Dame Bosworth. And I'll never forget, my sister was selling radio time, my sister Cindy. And she had been talking to me about um, a specific person that was selling Aim Weingarten funds on the air. And I kept saying, it's just not right. You can't sell one thing for everybody. You know, I would never do that. Well, it came that his show was canceled and they came and my sister came and asked if I wanted to do the radio show since I'd been complaining like crazy about it. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And so um, she went back to her boss and said that she had a client that wanted to um, do the radio show who was in finance. And he said, we'll never have another finance show on the air. And she came back to me and told me that. And I said, are you kidding me? You're not, you're really not going to give me, you offered me the show. So she went back and convinced them to give me an interview. And for almost eight years, they never knew we were sisters. And I remember walking out of there and he said, you can do the show. And I had a, an idea of on Mondays I would do tax, on Tuesdays I would do elder care, Wednesdays I'd do investments, on Thursdays I was doing, and Fridays was open mic. And I went back to my boss and he said, you want me to spend $40,000 for you to do a show where you're not going to sell investments? And I said, yeah, it's all about relationships. It's all about education. And so in 29 years, I've never sold an investment on the show. It's always been about educating and bringing more to the table and giving people opportunities to make decisions, but also to explore ways that they can become involved or to explore things that they may not know anything about. And so, Chip, you really fill one of those buckets because you have so many things that you're interested in. You've had an absolutely phenomenal October, November, of course. You've got a trip coming up that I'd like to talk about. And more importantly, why you do these things. Well, 
you know, I really came on the air to sell a widget. And <laughs> <laughs> so Did I was going to raise a little bit of money today, but I guess we won't talk about the widget. Um, no, I, um, I really appreciate what you do. And, and 29 years is a long time. And to be able to do it without, without selling something specific. To me, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the challenge that people are having with social media is they're bombarded with some kind of pitch all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and what I love about you and, and your firm and, and what you do on the air is it's about story and people and, mm-hmm. and you know, the rest, will, the rest will be there. Well, and so many of us um, live our lives through other people and their stories. And um, recently, well, actually almost a year ago, we started a group in EIG, which is Armchair Travelers, and it's for our clients who can't travel. Mm-hmm. And they love to hear the stories of what's going on in the world. And you have got your fingers in so many pies that, um, and, and all for the right reason. And so. Well, you know, I, I started our company 33 years ago. So not, not too long before the radio show began for you. And there wasn't a phrase at the time that was appropriate for what we were trying to do today the term would be social entrepreneur, mm-hmm. which is we wanted to build, or I, I guess at that time it was just me, wanted to build <laughs> a sustainable film production company, but I didn't want money to be the driving reason behind what we were doing. So we've done a lot of projects where they are investment driven, and when they are, that is the primary goal, and that's a big part of what you know we'll you know we'll pursue it with every commercial opportunity we can find. But for the most part, as a company, we've just tried to be sustainable. And and that's allowed us to engage in a lot of things that weren't about profit. Mm -hmm. So people for a long time would say, well, you know, why are you going and documenting this uh, disaster in in Pakistan or in Haiti? And it was because I have the media skills and the tools, the toolbox to go do it and to share that story. So in cases like that, it's not about sustaining the company as much as it is about rebuilding an enterprise that needs some kind of muscle, media muscle behind whatever that humanitarian effort might be. And I think just because that term social entrepreneur is now a popular term, it helps describe companies like ours. Mm -hmm. And I love your example of the armchair travelers because when I first moved to Milwaukee and started working, we did a lot of travel films. I think I did 13. So the travel films that we were producing wound up on Discovery Channel. And, you know, we'd go to India or we'd go, which, by the way, I know you were just there. Um, (laughs) First time there for me was 87. Um, But we'd go to India or we'd go to Scandinavia or Australia and we'd come back and just literally um, have a one-hour film that celebrated the culture and the people and the, the natural wonders of those particular places. And the gentleman who they were out of San Francisco that distributed those films called them armchair travel. Really? Yeah. That was his term. <laughs> he always said, yeah, that's you're, you're filling this void with these films for armchair yes. travelers. And, and it's interesting because I, I really enjoyed those. And a lot of times we'd be working with a government's tourist entity, tourism entity. So the tourism commission of India or Australia or wherever, and they wanted us to see the best 
And so a lot of times we were treated in this kind of first class way. <laughs> oh, here's you're staying at this hotel and you're you're flying on this airline. Um, and today it's the opposite. It's like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I wind up sleeping on the ground about one month out of the year in some place <laughs> in a tent. <laughs> so I went from the, here's the Ritz-Carlton in Copenhagen to, yeah, here's a tent. You know, Chip, speaking about starting and sleeping on the ground, and I, I think about your most recent um, film, and I was privileged to see it last year, uh, The First Patient, and that's what you've really been focusing on this last this last month. And um, as as you know, my listeners know, I'm very involved with the Milwaukee Film Festival, mm-hmm. and uh, your film showed was this year, and it was amazing. I've talked to so many people. Uh, a friend of mine, Kurt, I just spoke to him yesterday, and he said he called you that it was yeah. phenomenal. And um, can you talk a little bit about that? And I know that it's going to be showing on the 10th of the 13th um, mm-hmm. at the Oriental Theater. And if you haven't seen it, it is really an amazing um, film. And you're going to be there, right? I'll be there on the 13th for okay. the, the Q&A. And Theron Pfeiffer from our office will be there on the 10th. He's the associate producer of the film. Well, first, um, thank you and your firm for supporting the festival, but also um, for sponsoring the screening of the first patient this year. At the festival, we had a, um, a absolutely great showing, and it the theater was almost full, um, and yet we were up against Game Seven <laughs> of, the, of the Brewers' uh, playoff hopes against uh, the Dodgers. I think it was, but anyway, they. I was like, really, we got to go up against Game Seven. <laughs> the problem was, I wanted to watch the game. So, yeah. um, but even with that in mind, we had a great showing. Um, and the festival brought it back now for several more screenings at the Oriental. So uh, it will, November 10th and November 13th, it will be playing at the Oriental Theater. And I'll be uh, with Bob Huck, one of the other producers. I'll be there on the 13th. It's next Tuesday. Um, the film just opened in New York City last week, and it opens in L.A. on November 9th. And then at some point, it'll be on a a, a major platform. I just can't. Uh, talk about that yet, but it'll be a film that people can see. Um, the the interest in the healthcare community so far has been through the roof. I mm-hmm. mean, we're getting increase from around the world from institutions who want to show this film, and the reason I think is it's a very uh, it's not clinical. It's a very emotional and powerful, and I think inspiring look at the journey of first year medical students. And for people who don't uh, necessarily understand their, their first year or the curriculum that they're going through, the, one of the first things that first-year medical students do is dissect the human body. And it's a topic that has been taboo for a long time. And yet, we, after years of trying to find an institution who would let us film that class, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine stepped up. And they had the courage and the, the wherewithal to let us into the lab and document that particular class. And as you know, because you've seen it, it 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 sounds like it's going to be a grotesque, mm-hmm. uh, difficult thing to watch. And it's not, uh, mainly because our audience is on the same journey as the students are. So we we really ease everybody into this classroom and we get to know the students and we understand who they are and, and why they've 
chosen this profession. And these are some of the most altruistic, just purely beautiful young people that it makes, I've heard of people say this after watching the film, that any of them, any of the members of this cast could be their doctor and they'd be perfectly happy. And I think as the film is being rolled out and people are talking about it more, what we're seeing is that it's, it's showing the humanity behind healing and healthcare. So there's a constant debate around healthcare. Oh, my premiums are too high. Pharmaceutical costs, insurance companies. And, you know, that's a debate that other people can have. But the, the pureness and the kind of overall drive that these young people have just to be healers. They don't go into it to make a lot of money. They go into it to help people. And that's what comes through the film. And so I think that's what audiences are reacting to. And, and I think the other thing, too, Chip, that and I've seen it twice, is that, and I always love a film that when you want to see it again because you know that there's something else you're going to get right, right. that you miss. And one of the things that was so apparent the first time around and even a deeper feeling was that I went into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a little grotesque and Mm -hmm. it's going to be tough. And, you know, is it the right film? And um, and as I watched the film, I realized that my perception was all wrong and the softness and the beauty of the transition from it actually being a body into it becoming a human being. Mm-hmm. And then I sat back and thought, what else have I misconstrued and thought that I knew, mm-hmm. that I didn't know? Because the evolution of these young students in starting out and um, having an idea themselves, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, as time went on, they became so connected. And I have so many physicians as clients, and I've asked every single one when I've met with them, and we've talked about the film, do you remember your face pa- first patient? And they all can tell you the exact name. Mm-hmm. Every single one of my clients remember their first patient. Yep. And it's interesting. That's a connection. Oh, a total connection. And globally, if you, if you meet someone who's a doctor, <clears throat> wherever they might be, they had a cadaver for their first patient in every case. Yeah. So you, you, we don't think about it, but the first pa- the first patient that most doctors or physical therapists or oral surgeons or uh, different nursing practices have had is, is a dead body. Yeah. Someone who gave their body upon their death for this educational purpose. Yeah. Now the, the flip side, and you've, because you've seen it, is we also have to make a film that's entertaining. Yes. And... And that can work in the marketplace. And so visually, we were very careful to to ease the audience into what they were going to see. And people, who make they get to the end and, and they're like, wow, I didn't know that I could watch somebody <laughs> holding the human brain. And I'm like, yes. yes, you can. And for our clients, because we did it at the Majestic Theater, they were eating dinner. I know. I still am a little amazed that that worked, but I, I watched and no one left. No one left. Chip, let's take a quick break. I see Wendy over there counting the numbers so that uh, I don't talk too long, which is very easy, especially when the two of us get together. Let's talk more about the first patient. And then also it was um, 
for the last six weeks, it was at the Charles Ellis Museum, right. um, you that. had photos and photographs and on some different projects that you have. And I think that art is a very difficult thing for people to often understand how to value it, how to pass it to their kids, um, what to do with it. And so let's talk a little bit about um, that whole artistic side and the value of art. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. And I realized that when I made the introduction last time, I just talked to my dear friend Chip as if you all knew him. And certainly I hope that you all do. But um, Chip Duncan is a filmmaker, a photographer, and he is the president of the Duncan Entertainment Group, which is actually right here in downtown Milwaukee. And I had a chance to meet Chip. Oh, it's been quite a while now. And I remember that it was an introduction through my friend Pam. And we met at your studio and I remember you came down and met me and said, oh, just walk around the studio. And then you came back to talk with me. And I remember looking at your photographs, and I was just getting into photography myself. And I felt like for the majority of the photographs I looked at, I felt like I had a connection, that there was something about that photograph that was me, that there was a part of me, and I could see how much we were alike. And since that time, I have purchased several of your photographs you've gifted, and um, I know exactly when a photograph talks to me. And you look at film, which I love the first patient, and um, I've seen so many of your films already, and I can slip right into those films and see myself it's hard to sometimes distinguish between art, the actual art form of itself, and then the emotion that's tied to the art. Well, there, there's a challenge that a lot of people, whether it's photography or film or music or uh, different kinds of artistic endeavors, where all of us want to be first and foremost sustainable. We, we want to be able to focus on what it is we're trying to create and not have to worry too much about the day-to-day things that we, you know, the money we need for a car or an apartment or, you know, to travel from point A to point B. Um, And so bridging that gap between art and commerce is a real challenge. And it's not something that is really taught much uh, to, at least certainly not in my experience, taught much to people who choose an artistic field. But art and commerce do come together uh, for the Duncan Group in, in particular. And so I've tried really hard to make to make it a journey that's artistically and aesthetically satisfying for me and for my colleagues. And at the same time, make sure that we can pay the bills, that we can pay the rent, that, you know, the health care, the different things that are required to just be a business. Um, but then the question becomes, what is art? And when does something transcend just being a commercial endeavor into being something truly artistic. So I would say, for example, in film, um, the first patient has a lot of things that some people would view as art and others might see it very differently. But there have been films like the Tolkien and Lewis film we did where every shot, every single photograph, every beat of music, every 
element we brought to the recording of the voiceover or whose voices we used, all of it was driven by art. And it was a project, that was a project for public television. So it had a very different goal. Now the the film we're working on now is a three-part series on a 1947 Italian sports car. The car itself is a work of art. And it's it's called the Cisitalia Porsche uh, 360, and then there's the Cisitalia 204A, the Cisitalia 200, or 202, excuse me. And those cars, when you see them, are really works of art, and they're very rare today. Um, I've, I've met with museum curators who don't, didn't even know about the Cisitalia, and then they see them and their eyes open up. And <laughs> and the Cisitalia car is really the, represents the birth of the Porsche company, um, because Ferdinand Porsche was one of the people who worked on this car in the late 40s. But now, today, you look back at this incredible vehicle, the 204A in particular, that was created you know, with a Grand Prix in mind. So it was it was really designed to be a great race car, but the aesthetics are so beautiful, and now it's rare. There's only four on Earth. One of them happens to be in Wisconsin, um, <laughs> which is driving the film. But uh, but today you can't look at that car and not think that's a work of art, mm-hmm. you know. And and some people set out to do that, um, and then other times it just it, that's what happens is it rises to the top. I mean. Um, one of the great characters in the history of Milwaukee is a, was an industrial designer named Brooks Stevens. And there's, I'm sure, listeners who might remember Brooks Stevens. He was well known for designing the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile and the <laughs> Harley Hog and the Evan Root outboard motor and the Miller High Life beer bottle. And so, you know, let's say you're sitting in a bar and you're drinking a Miller beer. At what point do you recognize that that bottle? And the shape of that bottle and that logo at some point transcended design and just became art. And Brooke Stevens was here. And at one point, I, I interviewed him. I, I probably have 20 hours of interviews with Brooks before he passed away back in the 90s. And, and you look at what he created. And at some point, it went from commerce to art. Mm-hmm. And the Milwaukee Art Museum did a big show of, on him quite a number of years ago. That, but they recognized that, oh, my gosh, that washing machine is art. That outboard mm-hmm. motor is art. So that's different than maybe somebody who's painting or doing a f- photograph or writing a piece of music. Um, but certainly at some point, the audience has to, has to ask that question. You know, am I looking at something just to decorate my bathroom? Or is this really a piece of art? And you have uh, uh, just an extraordinary gift for finding artists and and celebrating, you know, the sculpture or the painting. I mean, Kurt Clayman, who has some work in your in your uh, Pewaukee office, is just this great emerging artist from Milwaukee who had a career in advertising and and now is realizing that he's he's got all of these things to say mm-hmm. with a paintbrush. Yes, and and those people eventually, I think, it, something happens and it rises up. And hopefully, um, in my case, at least, I hope that's what's happened with my still photography because the intention has always just been to communicate, to share the story of this person in this location. And it could be an earthquake or it could be a um, a, a slum or uh, a war zone. But 
to celebrate the beauty of the people living in those circumstances has been a big driver of the stills that I do. So, Which was an accident. Yeah, a total accident. Um, <laughs> Which is what I love yeah, about it. Yeah. I mean, when I first started shooting stills, it was because I was carrying su- such heavy equipment to the tops of different peaks and passes around the world. And I realized at some point I need smaller equipment. I need. I don't want to quit doing what I'm doing, but I might need to shoot stills because video equipment back in 2000 when I made this decision was so big and so heavy. And, and now... Uh, I mean, I'll never forget the first time. It was 2004. I went to Afghanistan for Save the Children. And I took along a still camera. And by the end of the trip, I was like, my video gear was off in the (laughs) trunk of a car. And I was shooting stills because I felt so free. Mm -hmm. And now today, it, it, it does serve a different purpose. And I think there are people out there who might see it as art and maybe... Um, you know, maybe they'll buy my new book, Inspiring Change. Yes, yeah. which is absolutely fantastic. And you can see a lot of Chip's work in my office. We have a gallery, which I'm so excited about. And you can just stop in and walk in the Pewaukee office. You don't even have to come into our office because how it started out was I wanted to do a gallery showing of Chip's work. And I went, oh, my God, I have a gallery. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and little by little, and I had the, the beautiful opportunity of going with Chip to Africa this year and Ethiopia and Oma Valley. And it was just, it was just extraordinary. And uh, for me, art represents something that makes me feel something. I think you're only alive as much as you feel. And mm-hmm. your artwork and has so opened up my heart and has allowed me to feel things that I didn't even know that I could feel, which is, I think, a true testimony to what my art means to me. Mm-hmm. It is in commerce. It's, it's something that I love to surround myself with. Yeah. Well, you have a great eye for it. You really do. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And you did, a while back, you were telling me about Christie's. Mm -hmm. And uh, that fascinated me. So uh, Chip has got a great story uh, about Christie's. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor to the Ellen Becker Investment Group and a very good friend with Chip Duncan, who is a filmmaker, a writer, a photographer. He's the president of the Duncan Entertainment Group, and I have just sort of sat back and and watched his career as it's unfolded in so many different um, venues. And rec- well, actually, not recently, a while back, we were talking one night, and you told me a story about Christie's, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is really incredible. Well, I, um, gosh, uh, two years ago or so, I guess it was, yeah, it was two years ago because it was election day, um, 2016. I was invited to, by some friends in New York to, uh, participate in an underground tour of Christie's. And for those who don't know, Christie's is a big auction house that focuses on selling a lot of things, but in particular, they're known for being one of the world's foremost art dealers along with Sotheby's and their New York office is right next to 30 Rock and Rockefeller Center. So I was like, sure. Um, (laughs) I said, do you have a suit with you? And I was like, fortunately, yes. (laughs) I'm not known for wearing a suit, but yeah, I did have one. And so I showed up and uh, we did this underground tour of Christie's. And I, you know, we're walking through the, you know, the bowels of this extraordinary building. And, you know, there's a, a Rauschenberg and there's a 
you know, uh, Gauguin and, you know, all of this amazing artwork everywhere underground. So it wasn't even the work they were displaying <laughs> above ground. It was down there for, it might have been for, um, you know, storage of some kind before they moved it from London to Paris, back to New York, etc. So that led me to, um, of course, every time I see stuff like that, I want to make a film. And so then I had some meetings with senior people at Christie's and we're still in um, kind of discussion on this. But the idea was to do a film about what art is and how you value it. So in May of this year, I, I went to the Christie's auction and there was a Basquiat painting that sold for over $100 million. And, and you say, you know, you sit back and you go, $100 million dollars for a painting that when the guy painted the painting he was probably thinking boy i hope i can get a couple thousand dollars yeah. for this you know <laughs> and so how does something go from the artist's view of of you know something i want to create that hopefully tells a story that touches you emotionally that then i can you know use that money to build a studio or or pay for my canvases or you know, in my case, uh, the inks for the printing that I do of my photographs, that sort of thing, to suddenly being over a hundred million dollars, or uh, and the, I guess in the case of Basquiat, you can you can start to say, well, his work is very rare because he was he died at such a young age, um, so there isn't a lot of it out there, um, and that might be true with some of the classics like a Rembrandt or Michelangelo, but. But for the most part, there are artists that are cranking it out. I mean, Monet painted a mm -hmm. lot of paintings, and yet his work is also worth millions of dollars each time a new painting comes up on, on the auction house uh, floor. So part of it was, oh, gosh, we want to look at how this is monetized and who's making the money. And usually the, my question is, did the artist make anything? <laughs> yes. Like, like you know, and in Basquiat's case, no, not really. Yeah. Um but so I would love to see the artists nurtured and supported more in the process so that they can just create. But the, the world that we live in doesn't really support art that way. It's got, there's always this commerce element to it, but you know, to see a great painter or a great photographer or a great musician have the opportunity to focus more on what they're doing, which a lot of times is developing their craft, you know, being a better guitar player or learning how to, um, use a brush on a on a canvas in a more unique way. So some of it is craft oriented, but then ultimately, where does the idea come from? Where does you know if it's Anne Smiley or Jim Harrison? Where do those great ideas come from for the novels that they're you know that are coming through them? And so there's a point at which you say, yeah, that it transcended. It went from being just an enjoyable book to being a work of art, mm -hmm. a poem that suddenly speaks to you. So I'll give you an example. Um, photographically, um, there was a guy in town here for a long time. Some of your listeners might remember, uh, Michael Lord gallery. And, and Michael had a, a photo in his gallery one day that, uh, I just love the photographer. His name is Cartier Brisson. To me, everything he did is art. I mean, just a pure genius with a 50 millimeter lens on an old Leica camera. And Michael had one of his pieces for sale. And I, I went in and looked at it and I fell in love with the idea of it, but I didn't fall in love with that particular photo. So if it had been one of his, you know, what I consider masterpieces like the 
the photo that everybody would remember is a little French kid running with a bag that has a baguette <laughs> sticking out of it. Something like that, I probably would have bought it. Um, but this uh, particular photo didn't speak to me, so I didn't buy it. And yet he died two years later. It's probably worth five times what, what I yes. would have paid for it. So for me, it wasn't just about the, the investment opportunity of that art. I, if if I would I personally I wouldn't buy art for investment, mm-hmm. I'd buy art because I fell in love with the photograph or I fell in love with the song, mm-hmm. I fell in love with the the sculpture. And I know that, you know, turning it back to you for a minute, I know that's sort of how you're driven. I've watched that. I, I with um, any photo of mine or with the artwork of Kurtz or the sculpture that I know the story of the sculpture that you bought in in Greece. You are you buy what you're emotionally moved by. Mm-hmm. Um, you something shifts inside of you, and and it shifts from oh this is well made or this is just a nice photo or something to it speaks to you somehow, and that's that's where I think it you know art is. That's what makes it unique. That's uh, it speaks to you. Mm. And it's an interesting thing when. You have these pieces, and when I think about what happens when I die, what what monetary value or what emotional value will there be? And I am just so pleased because my kids love my art. Yeah. Well, and as and someone... I, I have clients who have art that their kids want nothing to do with. I mean, sure, it's sure. just not their taste. Yeah. But it's nice to know that the things that you have accumulated and that you love will... will be mm-hmm. appreciated or will it be around. Yeah, or they'll speak to the next generation. Yes. I mean, the rarity of something oftentimes adds value. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I limit most of my photos to five. And and in the show that I'm going to be working on uh, for uh, 2019, there will only be one copy. Mm-hmm. So that's unusual for a photographer. <laughs> but I, it, it it's a photo, it's a, a show based on human anatomy and the uh, first patient and the photographs of the inside of the human body. And I just want to limit it to one, mm-hmm. you know, so that may or may not, um, speak to a buyer. I have no idea. Um, but hopefully they'll, they'll, what will speak to them is the aesthetic of the photo. Yes. And, and then like in the case of Basquiat or in the case of a painting in a painting only exists once. Well, I think, in terms of, and I've told you that I'm so interested myself in that, but I can see as a parent or a grandparent and having one of my children or grandchildren graduate from medical school, what an incredible thing that would be to have something, a gift like that, hanging in their office. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a bunch of different Yeah. Things. Well, there, I, I, I know we need to go to a break, but just real quickly, I, um, one of the professors at Mayo Clinic when we were making the film, there was a moment in the dissection where she said, I need a photo of this nerve. And I photographed a close-up of that nerve. And to her, it's the most beautiful thing she's ever seen. And that's all. That's enough. That's enough. My guest today is Chip Duncan. Um, As I said, he's an author, a filmmaker, a photographer, uh, the Duncan Group, Entertainment Group downtown. And, uh, And you're moving. Soon. We are moving. You are moving soon. So that's a whole new thing. Let's take a break and let's catch up on a couple of the new things that are going on and, again, talk about uh, the first patient and where people can see it. (music) 
Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. If you would like to stop in and see some of Chip's works, my friend Kurt, my work, um, also a photograph of the car. Mm-hmm. It's all here. You can just stop in at the office and be happy to share that with you. And Chip, just, you know, we only have a, I don't know, a few minutes left for the interview. What would you like to leave the audience with? Um, some of the things that you've been doing and I think what drives you? What gets you up in the morning and drives you? It's like walking through Christie's or seeing the car and all of a sudden the light goes on and it says this is worthy of my time? I, well, that's a great question. I do think there's a, there's a moment where I, I think, can I, can I create you know, a version of this story? So it could be Christie's. It could be um, an upcoming film we're doing on the, on the uh, Cis Italia 204A car. And nobody knows that it's associated with the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, well, he... <laughs> yeah, and it's that's the Ferdinand Porsche part of yes. the whole story. It's like um, I mean, this is a story, an incredible, oh God, incredible a... story. Yeah, and the, and the, the challenge for me is I heard the story um, through a, a friend of mine named Bob Kendall. Had he he's the one that told me what ha- what what the basis of this story was, <laughs> how this car came to be, and then I hired a researcher and we put the research together and proved that yes, in fact, everything he was telling me was true. But in this case, I can't tell that story without, you know, finding some financial backing to do it <laughs> because it requires travel and I have to go to Italy and I have to go to Argentina. And, you know, it's, is that fun? Sure. My whole life, my, my career, I love what I do, but a film requires financial resources. When I'm working on a book of fiction, I can literally just be sitting at home with my laptop and no, it's not costing me anything. So it's costing my, my time. And, and if I'm passionate about it, that's fine. And photography compared to film is also a much less expensive endeavor on the front end. I have to have the equipment and maybe travel, but it's not, it's not resource heavy financially. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are stories that present themselves to me that I can't, I simply can't find a way to, to finance. So the story of Mike kind of just live in the back of my head for a long time with certainly the passion or the the dream or the desire to create it but i i think that financial backing is difficult to come by um i've been working with former u.s senator george mitchell for quite a while on a film about the northern ireland peace accord because what senator mitchell accomplished in northern ireland may be one of the most extraordinary feats of the last 200 years of peacemaking but I haven't been able to find the, the the backers, the philanthropic funders, to get the film made, and and so it's not that I don't want to make the film. It, I just don't know how to how to finance it. So, you know, there's um, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But um, when it comes to, for me, a, a story, um, I'll I'll say, okay, how do I tell this story? Can I do this um, in a song? And, you know, you and I worked recently with Willie Porter on a song mm-hmm. that you had a story. And we were like, I remember you were like, <laughs> how do we tell this story? I'd like to tell it with music. Well, who can, who can we work with? Willie Porter. And mm-hmm. Willie did this extraordinary song. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the decision any artist has to undertake when they're 
you know, maybe in their 20s and they're trying to figure out where do I go? How do I get to this place? And of course, I always say, well, don't make money your driver. Make mm-hmm. your passion, you know, carry you forward and, and find a way because there is no clear path. The way I do what I do would be different for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing is the story. And then, you know, what's the best way to tell it? If I, if I, um, if I could do it in a poem, I would do it in a poem. If that wasn't, if that's the best way to tell that story. Um, and a poem doesn't cost a lot of money to create. Talk about your book. Well, the book um, that you're referencing is a book that came out just a little earlier this year, and I'm going to be making a push over the holidays for people to discover this book. It's, it is a book of photography. It's called Inspiring Change, and it's a photographic journey of mine over the last 10 years. And it's really just intended and designed to celebrate culture and celebrate diversity and celebrate beauty. Um, and the images are of people that I've photographed all, over, all around the world, uh, from India to Peru to Colombia to Ethiopia. And so it's the first thing I've ever done where I, I intentionally self-published. And so I worked with a local printer here in town that did a phenomenal job. And we're only marketing it through our company. So the Duncan Entertainment Group or DuncanEntertainment.com. Uh, the company store has the book. And then I'm doing appearances around town. Uh, we did the Charles Alice Museum, which was sponsored by your company. And and the book is, it's finding the audience it needs to find. Mm-hmm. So you can always find it through the independent bookstores like Boswell's. Um, but it's it's really designed to celebrate humanity and celebrate culture and diversity and those things that build bridges between cultures. So it's, and it's it's perfect for everyone. And so if you're looking for that unique gift, yeah. that's a perfect gift to give someone. Well, and if someone can't find it um, for some reason, I'm guessing they could call your company mm-hmm. and you'd be able to direct them to us. And, and, um, and, and then um, to give you a last little update on the first patient, um, that uh, film has its own website called thefirstpatient.com. And on that website, there are some unbelievable blog posts from doctors and medical students from all over the world. I mean, one of the ones that came in from Hong Kong was just amazing and different Mayo Clinic people and different people from Kaiser Permanente. And so it's that website is kind of growing. It's a celebration. It's, it is. It's a celebration it's of a life celebration. told through students and their first patient which in this case happens to be dead. Um, so, you know, DuncanEntertainment.com is, is, is one way to find us um, or just open the phone book, give us a call. So, Chip, in terms of next year, you're working on the Porsche project. Um, you're also working on three tenors. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of great things going. So I hope you'll come back and, and share them with us. Yeah, the three tenors of climate change is a totally pro bono project. But that's mm-hmm. um, one that we hope people will celebrate. It's a it's a couple of friends of mine and I talking about climate change and looking at at uh, what's happening with the environment around the world and how it's changing. My guest today is Chip Duncan, and I said he is a filmmaker, photographer. The first patient will be playing at the Oriental Theater this coming um, Saturday, today, on the 10th, and also on the 13th. Chip will be there on the 13th. It's a great opportunity to meet him. Um, And as always, I hope that it made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we rise, before we